walk down the street and I saw this boy wearing this Mario Brothers t-shirt and I was so happy that I had my gun. Hello fellow netizens and welcome to Scandalous Games, the show where we take a closer look at video game related controversies. I'm Kevin Impelazari and I do the research and share a story of a video game related controversy to my friends. Hi, my name's Phil and you might as well consider me a video game newbie. Hi, I'm Alfred Stevens. I'm a longtime video game aficionado. I'm Kate. I've been writing software for a little over a decade, but not necessarily the fun kind. Before we get started, I have a big announcement for our listeners. This episode will be dropping in October, and in honor of Halloween, we will be launching our second ever syncable commentary track, where we'll be doing the 2005 Carl Urban, Roseman Pike, and Dwayne the Rock Johnson vehicle, Doom. I had a lot of fun recording with you, so I hope you all check that out later this month. Yeah, I kept forgetting The Rock was in that, even while we were watching it. He was the best part. Semper Fi, motherfucker. <laughs> it's not a good movie, but it's a pretty awesome line to come out of it. And so I hope you'll join us as we rip and tear through Doom on October the 31st. All right, so for the topic for today's episode. I have good news and I have bad news. So which do you want to hear first? Bad news. Oh, no, no, good news, please, please. Phil, <laughs> like you're the tiebreaker. We're hearing the good news and the bad news first. I only like the good news for people who like bad news. <laughs> All right. So how about this? So we'll start with the bad news. So the bad news is, is that due to a scheduling issue, the topic that we were going to do today is going to be pushed off for a month. So the bad news is, unfortunately, we're going to be doing one more month on Dave Grossman. However, the good news is, this is probably the silliest we're going to get with Dave. And it's pretty lighthearted. I think we'll generally be a, a more fun conversation than hearing about, you know, Dave's bad research and the fact that Dave tends to really like the research put together by, you know, fascists and white supremacists. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun dunking on Dave this month. So we're going to do one more month on Dave Grossman. And next month, we're going to switch into a different topic that's not related to Dave. Taking up our conversation from last time, today we will shift our focus to the critical and public reception to On Killing, which of course was made by our old friend, the self-proclaimed killologist, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And listeners of our previous episodes will recall that On Killing, the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society, was Grossman's 1995 book, where he argued that between the Second World War and the Vietnam War, the U.S. developed new training techniques to improve their overall firing rate of its soldiers, while psychologically conditioning them to ignore that, you know, that little voice in your head that says it's a bad idea to kill other people. This set up his larger claim that violent media, especially movies and video games, are doing the same thing to, you know, precious young Timmy and Tammy in their impressionable, supple minds, and set the stage for his moral crusade against violent video games, which all of this is starting to set up for. However, we also learned that Grossman claims that on killing were based on, to put it bluntly, some really dog shit research. And for more on that, check out our previous episodes. So I've shared my thoughts on this book in exhausting detail over the last few months. You may ask yourself then, what did real researchers who aren't me think about Grossman's contributions to our collective understanding of the Destructive Act? And as far as I can tell, Unkilling made little impact in the academic community when it came out in 1995. Searching on JSTOR, which is a digitized repository of scholarly journals, the only publication I came across that reviewed Unkilling when it came out was the March-April 1996 issue of Foreign Affairs Magazine, 
where reviewer Elliot A. Cohen called it a, quote, flawed but intriguing study, end quote. Cohen complimented Grossman's writing. However, he noted the work's shallow research, writing, quote, the author, an Army infantry officer who has taught psychology at West Point, writes well and persuasively. Historians, however, will stir uneasily as they examine his footnotes, which cite sources from Soldier of Fortune magazine to the surveys of S.L.A. Marshall to various popular works of history, end quote. Cohen also commented, that Grossman's last section on media violence, you know, that whole thing where he goes on about the virus of violence and how, you know, all the operating conditioning that was going on in the army allegedly is now happening, you know, with watching movies and playing video games. He called that last section, quote, something of a tangent to the central argument, but powerfully put nonetheless, end quote. And aside from that, I found a spattering of citations between 1995 and 1998 for on killing in some journals related to politics, law, and international relations. However, I noticed a conspicuous lack of citations in psychology journals, which you think would be weird considering Grossman claims that he's a psychologist. However, to be fair, as we've already covered in exhaustive detail, On Killing was clearly never intended for an academic audience, as any historian or psychologist worth their salt could have easily exposed it for the pseudoscientific humbug that it was. The book was published by Little Brown and Company, a popular press, and popular presses are generally interested less in a given title's academic rigor and more focused on its likelihood of selling. Unfortunately for Grossman, a bunch of mass-circulated newspapers covered the book, albeit giving it mixed reviews. So I'll give you some examples. While infuriatingly few critics challenge his assertions of low firing rates and operant conditioning among American soldiers, many were skeptical over Grossman's conclusions about the dangerous impact of violent media. Richard Bernstein of the New York Times criticized Grossman's writing style, which he described as, quote, marred by repetitiveness and frequent recourse to the wooden jargon of behaviorist psychology, end quote. However, he didn't question Grossman's research or his overall conclusions about the conditioning of people to kill in both military and civilian society, calling it, quote, powerfully argued, end quote. That being said, he stopped short of accepting all of Grossman's claims, specifically taking issue with his conclusions about the relationship of media violence and real-world violence. And this consistently is one of the big issues that a lot of critics had about Grossman, is that that last section where he claims that, you know, crime rates are up and, you know, video games and violent media are the cause of it. Most people criticized this. They thought it was poorly thought out. They thought it wasn't really based on a lot of facts. Uh, We're going to see that in a bunch of these critical assessments of On Killing. So the big thing that he wants people to take away is a thing that a lot of people thought was like the weakest part of this book. Now, that being said, Cohen's closing paragraph in his review is a really wishy-washy both sides appeal on this question of the virus of violence, where he ultimately sides with Grossman, writing of Grossman's claim that America was in the grips of this virus of violence. Quote, is that true? Some argue there is no connection between on-screen violence and actual violence. Perhaps they are right, but Mr. Grossman's case is too carefully presented, too well-grounded in actual observation, not to be taken seriously, end quote. Thank you again, New York Times. Barbara Doe Whitehead of the Washington Post, meanwhile, also largely didn't challenge Grossman's assumptions. However, she called his take on media violence overly simplistic and not accounting for other potential contributing factors to violent crime, writing, quote, If there is any flaw in this otherwise absorbing book, it's that it strays beyond its own evidence offering an intriguing but far too simplistic argument about the problem of and the solution to violent crime. Two, in its conception of the act of killing, this book comes perilously close to a crud behaviorist view. If our actions were governed by conditioned responses alone, rather than what James Q. Wilson calls a moral sense, then it's hard to explain why killing causes such a psychological trauma in the first place, end quote. Phil, did you want to jump in? Yes, thank you. I don't know why I didn't think of this during any of our other episodes, but 
you know, there are other countries that have access to all the same video games that we do, but don't have mass killings. And I think that's likely due to access to guns. So if it were video games that were promoting this, like, wouldn't there be other types of mass killings happening in like, you know, Australia and Japan and Germany and, and all sorts of other places? That's an excellent question. I will tell you, we are going to cover that. In fact, some of the reviews I have are from international critics who make the same argument as you're making that like, you know, America has different crime rates and different access to guns than, you know, other parts of the world. Does this actually apply to them? And is this a universal thing is actually a point that a bunch of them make. Did you want to jump in, Alfred? You know, I was at the bookstore yesterday looking for presents for two boys' birthday parties. And I thought about getting some anime, not anime, apology, mangas. And I was paging through different ones, looking for ones that didn't have too much violence because I don't know the parents. And this conversation reminded me of that because my kids watch a lot of anime. And the level of violence in some of the shows that they have for children is far exceeded what we have in our American shows. And just thinking about what Phil said about violence in Japan versus here, it is interesting, especially like combat violence that they will have. And it's okay for the kids to be watching it, yet they don't have the level of violence that we have here. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And one thing that does come up about Grossman's is often the question of like, you know, other countries have similar exposures to media but don't have the kinds of things. And the, the big differing factor in a lot of those countries is that the U.S. has a lot more lenient gun regulations. In fact, hold on to that. I'm going to mention international critic in a moment. One more domestic one was Karanha E. Hanaku. And I, I apologize if I've pronounced the name wrong, who was a writer for the Memphis, Tennessee-based Commercial Appeal, felt in their review the book was better suited for academics than general readers. This is a funny, kind of a funny review with that, because we've talked about how I don't really think Grossman is an academic. I don't think his book is academic, but it's really interesting to hear journalist critics who are thinking that it is an academic work because it was put together by a guy who was a quote unquote professor at Arkansas State University and was a, again, quote unquote, former professor at West Point, that they're trying to treat it that way. So here's what Ahanaku said about his book, quote, this is a scholarly work. And I would say this aside, no, it isn't. Grossman is a better researcher than he is a writer. Uh, second aside, no, no he's not. <laughs> It is put forward simply the value. Oh, sorry, he could be a really, 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 really bad writer. <laughs> well, it's so inconsistent because that's the other thing that comes out in these reviews. Some people say he's a good writer, just in general, a good writer, and some say he's a bad writer. So who knows? I don't think he's a great writer as a researcher. I think in terms of stylistic, he's fine. He's very straightforward, very functional writer, from what I've read. But it's funny how they're like, there are two camps. One is it's too dry and academic for a popular audience. And the other is he's very clear and persuasive. So it's either full of jargon or it's not. And I don't know which to believe. So yeah, says it is put forward simply. The value individuals place on it will in good measure depend on how much value they place on psychology. The greater your appreciation of the relationship between psychology and behavior, the better the chances of Grossman's work finding its way into your library, end quote. And I would probably say, aside, the more you know about the you know scholarly study of psychology, probably the less likely you're going to have Grossman's book, because you're going to see it's just like this, you know, junk pop psychology book. But anyway, Ahanaku was also skeptical of Grossman's warnings of the hazardous effects of movies and video games, calling his last section, quote, the weakest part of the book, end quote. 
And one of the more critical takes, and this goes back to your question, Phil, about is there an international analog to this? Is this where this comes in? Because one of the more critical takes on Unkilling came from a review from a Hong Kong-based paper called the South China Morning Post, in which writer Tim Hadlett was mostly on board with Grossman's assessment of the psychology of killing, albeit with some issues with Grossman's historical accuracy. So in the book, quote, sometimes wobbles historically, end quote. As with other reviewers in the popular press, Hamlet's harshest criticism was for Grossman's last section, where Hamlet contested his conclusions about the impact of media violence on American crime rate, specifically noting, and this goes back to your point, Phil, that other countries have similar levels of media violence, but not America's rates of violent crime, explaining, quote, Grossman is impressively thoughtful and well-informed about battlefield psychology. On media effects, he's an amateur and it shows, end quote. And Grossman, meanwhile, you might be curious what he took from this. He took away from these reviews that his book had an overwhelmingly positive reception. And to this day, he'll brag that On Killing attracted praise from both the New York Times and Washington Post. (laughs) Any publicity is good publicity. Good positive thinking. Keeps you motivated. Oh, on top of that, did you know that On Killing was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize? This This is a true fact. It was nominated for a Pulitzer. Now, on paper, receiving a Pulitzer Prize nomination, it sounds pretty impressive, you know, because the award honors outstanding contributions to writing the arts. However, here's the thing. Being nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which I cannot contest that. I think On Killing was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. But here's the thing about being nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. It loses a bit of its luster to call your book a Pulitzer Prize nominated work when you learn that literally anyone can nominate any book for a Pulitzer Mm -hmm. So long as they fill out an application form and pay an entry fee. These days, it's $75 for a book. So if you put out a book, you could nominate it for a Pulitzer Prize. It doesn't mean you're a finalist. It doesn't mean you'll win. And you could then pitch it as a Pulitzer Prize nominated book, knowing full well you're the one who nominated it, which I'm pretty sure that's what Dave did. Because the real accomplishment in a Pulitzer is being a finalist, which is vetted from the massive pool of applicants. However, that doesn't stop some enterprising authors from submitting their book to the nomination committee, paying the fee, and then bragging how they quote unquote earned a nomination. And you'll often see like Grossman definitely does this, but also a number of reporters also report on on Killing as a Pulitzer Prize nominated book. Can podcasts get nominated for Pulitzers? I'm just going to throw this out there. The thing I just popped into the Zoom chat, there is a Pulitzer Prize category for audio reporting now, which is podcast. There we go. For a distinguished example of audio journalism that serves the public interest, characterized by revelatory reporting and illuminating storytelling. $15,000! Jesus Christ! Wait, wait, is that that an award or is that a submission fee? No, that's the the award. Okay, how much much is a person to submit? I don't know! Are we doing this? I mean... Okay, okay. Yeah, we're we're doing this right now. Uh, So, Kate, where do we go to enter? I'm, I'm clicking the how to enter. Okay, let's see. Books, drama, music, journal, journalism. That's the one we want, right? We want the real deal. Okay. You heard yeah. it here first. The Pulitzer Prize nominated in Scandalous Games. Yeah. Well, you'll be able to say that on it, every podcast. It is $75 a person. We should just do this so that we can stay <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should do a fundraising drive and raise the $15,000 that way. Well, that's <laughs> apparently the award. We only have to pay 75 bucks for this. We should do a Kickstarter for that, though, too. Yeah. <laughs> I promise that the rest of the money will be, you know, spent ethically. And by ethically, I mean, I've been looking to get a PS5 for a while. I want to win a Pego. Should we start a GoFundMe to raise the $75? I would be interested to see if 
we could actually raise $75 from our listeners. I will start to feel if anybody gives Given... me money. If me gives me money out of their pocket, they're harder to cash for this. I'll feel, I will feel really bad. I know, yeah, me but too. to be nominated for a Pulitzer? Come on. Uh, if we had merch, like if you could get stickers or mugs or something, you could send these people at least as a thank you. If I'm... one person donated $75, I would make them a scandal coin. There you go. Okay. There you go. All right. That is going in the episode. There you go. So calling out yeah. to our listeners, get us nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Take that, Dave Grossman. Get a personalized scandal coin for your trouble. All right. So, so Dave, he still claims, and some reporters will even claim that he's nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. But again, it's technically true, but that's not a huge accomplishment. Because again, all it says is that you filled out a form for yourself. That's all it says. And in fact, it may not surprise you to learn that Dave Grossman has a long history of promoting so-called accomplishments that only sound impressive if you know nothing about them and just take Dave at his word. And that is going to be the main topic for the bulk of this episode. So today, we're going to take a closer look at Dave Grossman's resume and examine some of the self-proclaimed killologists, self-proclaimed bona fides. And without revealing too much off the bat, we're going to see that Dave's got a pretty substantial track record, let's say, embellishing his qualifications. And this will help us better understand, number one, how dangerously irresponsible it is to treat him as an expert. And number two, that the things he brags about are really revealing about the kind of person he is. Now, with that in mind, we'll start by examining his official biography. So this is the thing that Dave puts out about himself, which I'm drawing from two of his websites. Those are the Dave Grossman Academy and Dave Grossman on Truth. So the bio for Dave Grossman on Truth is the longer of the two of them and describes the self-proclaimed killologist thusly. Quote, in their description of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, Slate Magazine said, Grossman cut such a heroic, omni-competent figure, he could have stepped out of a video game. He has five patents to his name, has published four novels, two children's books, and six non-fiction books to include his perennial bestseller, perennial bestsellers in quotes for some reason, on killing, with over half a million copies sold, and a New York Times bestselling book co-authored with Glenn Beck. He's a U.S. Army Ranger, a paratrooper, and a former West Point psychology professor. He is a black belt in hojutsu, the martial art of the firearm, and has been inducted into the USA Martial Arts Hall of Fame. Colonel Grossman's research was cited by the President of the United States in a national address, and he has testified before the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Congress, and numerous state legislatures. He has served as an expert witness and consultant in state and federal courts. He helped train mental health professionals after the Jonesboro School Massacre, and he was also involved in counseling or court cases in the aftermath of the Paducah, Springfield, Littleton, and Nickel Mines Amish School Massacres. Colonel Grossman has been called upon to write the entry on aggression and violence in the Oxford Companion to American Military History, three entries in the Academic Press Encyclopedia of Violence, Peace, and Conflict, and has presented papers before the National Conventions of the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Since his retirement from the U.S. Army in 1998, he has been traveling full-time as one of our nation's leading trainers for military, law enforcement, mental health providers, and school safety organizations. 
Today, Colonel Grossman is the director of Grossman on Truth, LLC. In the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, he has written and spoken extensively on the terrorist threat, with articles published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Civil Policy and many leading law enforcement journals. And he has been inducted as a life diplomat by the American Board for Certification in Homeland Security and a life member of the American College of Forensic Examiners Institute, end quote. Now, the bio for the Dave Grossman Academy, meanwhile, has a lot of the same talking points I just addressed from Dave Grossman on Truth. However, it adds some additional pieces to Dave Grossman's resume, which we'll dissect a little bit, too. For example, it adds that on killing is part of the Marine Corps Commandant's required reading list, as well as assigned reading to the FBI Academy. He also claims to have been an expert witness for the prosecution in the criminal trial against American terrorist Timothy McVeigh. What, what do we think so far? What do we think of his accomplishments? And the other question I'm going to ask you is, how much of that do you think is actually true? So I know everybody's wondering, according to Wikipedia, hojutsu is actually a real Japanese martial art style, likely beginning somewhere in the mid-1600s. Dude, I'm so glad you brought up hojutsu. Hold on to that. We're going to talk about that. Any other thoughts about this whole thing? I don't think they'll stand up to any intense scrutiny, but he probably is proving a point, which is that anything you cite that sounds half legitimate is probably good enough. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm just deeply, deeply impressed with everything that he's been able to accomplish to the level that he has throughout his illustrious career. <laughs> Damning with fade praise is Kate right now. <laughs> oh, what? I'm really impressed. Does he have a Patreon? Dude, he doesn't need a Patreon. You could buy a whole bunch of shit off his website, including, I was going to save this for the last episode. I looked at his store. One of the things you can buy is literally, you know, those giant post-it notes, like you might see them for meetings at giant post-its. He will send you for like $30, him signing one of them. Literally just a giant post-it thing. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. I'm on his website right now. He sells knives. Oh yeah, his his son has a gun and knife company called Sheepdog Gun and Knife. His son, John Grossman, runs this company. Are you going to buy us all t-shirts? I'm looking at the website. Fuck then... no, absolutely not. Well, that's where I thought you were going with at the end of this series. You're all, you're, you're... Reach under your seat, everyone. <laughs> Everybody gets a knife! Did um... you see this kid's book he's selling here? Jesus Christ, I have, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got like a... I guess it's supposed to be a mom and two kids. One is uh, being carried and she's holding the other one's hand. I'm guessing they're wolves or dogs. And the book is called Why Mommy Carries a Gun. Jesus Christ almighty. Huh. Yeah, Just he's the too. title of that book, I feel like that situation, whatever her reasoning, maybe the child then needs to assess a child psychiatrist. Like, Yeah, I'm also going to... Out, I don't know whether or not Dave Grossman is a furry, but whoever he got to make the cover art for that book is a furry. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> or they do, they just, they do artwork commissions for furries. I, it... Just so you know, we're all, we're all acceptance of people's lifestyle choices and furries are okay with us. That is we just, just fine. Dave Grossman to be very clear about who he is. And, or if certain people are buying the book, it's not because they're interested in learning more about conceal and carry and how to talk to their kids about it. They just want the cover. <laughs> it's funny it's really funny you mention it i swear that dave grossman is a nerd and particularly a fantasy nerd 
Because occasionally, I mentioned this in the last episode, he, out of nowhere in On Killing, there's a footnote that just randomly quotes Witches Abroad, which is a Terry Pratchett novel. And he will sometimes, I came across a PBS interview he did, I think it was after Columbine. He did this PBS interview and he just out of nowhere referenced Lord of the Rings. So I think he is a fantasy geek. How much he will admit that is another thing. But there's like little subtle things he'll kind of float out there that he's kind of into that. It'd be funny if he's also a furry. I just as an aside, you mentioned that. I'd be very interested if he was a furry. So, just to, sorry, just to be absolutely clear, we don't. We're not saying that he is. We have no way of knowing that. And to Alfred's point, that would be the one thing I'd be okay with. About like, it'd be okay if you are. We're not going to kink shame here. Absolutely not. Yeah, consenting cool. adults. You know. All right, so we're going to pack a bunch of these things. So I will say off the front that not all of the qualifications he presents in his quotations are bullshit. So, for example, U.S. President Bill Clinton did cite Grossman in a weekly radio address following the Columbine shooting in 1999. So that part is actually true. And Grossman has spoken before lawmakers at various levels of government. He's talked before Congress. He's talked before state legislatures. So that part is true. He actually did do that. However, some other things on here are misrepresentations, exaggerations, or in some cases, outright lies. So why don't we take a closer look at some of them? And I think the best place to start is right at the top with that quotation from Slate. Because in many ways, it is emblematic of what we've already covered about Dave Grossman as a researcher. So I will read that quotation again, and we're going to dissect this. So here's the thing he put again from at the very, very start of his bio on Dave Grossman on Truth. He said that Slate said, quote, Grossman cut such a heroic, omnicompetent figure, he could have stepped out of a video game, end quote. So again, we're going to put our historian hats on for a minute and ask ourselves, in what context Slate said that about Dave Grossman. What was the larger point of making this comment that he's omnicompetent and could have stepped out of a video game? What do we think about it? Um, That's a little too good to be true. Like maybe his points only go as far as whatever it is that he's espousing, but he doesn't really have the subject matter to back it up because he would have to be an expert in too many different things. What does everybody else think? That he clearly understands the medium of video games despite not playing them just because he kind of, you know, not say like he is one sort of thing, but like he therefore can speak with authority on a subject that he has no authority on based on this assertion. Uh, it kind of goes along the lines of his many accolades in life. Being omnicompetent absolves you of having to have any actual validation for your ideas, ability to justify scientific evidence or anything. If you're omnicompetent, what you said can and should be believed without you having had any done anything to earn someone else's reason to follow you, I guess. Thank you for your observations. Thanks for everybody's observations. I think these are really good analysis. So with that in mind, allow me to offer a little bit more context for this quotation. It is a real quotation. It really does come from a Slate article. But why don't we take a closer look at that article? So this line comes from a November the 30th, 2016 Slate article written by Laura Miller titled, How Video Games Change Us. In it, Miller examined the discourse over video games both addressing concerns over the alleged effects of violent video game content, as well as concerns over toxicity in the video game fan community, you know, the kind of stuff that inspired Gamergate. She sets Grossman up as one of the loudest voices in the harmful effects of violent video game exposure camp. So, you know, violent video games cause violent behavior kind of thing. The stuff we've covered a lot on this show, and it's been kind of the bread and butter for Grossman. So she sets him up as kind of the big representative of that camp. However, 
What we don't get from Dave's description of himself as a heroic, omnicompetent figure is that in the proper context, Miller is totally making fun of him. She is mocking Dave for his hyperbolic bravado over his accomplishments on her way to dismantling Dave's claims as alarmist, conspiratorial, and not based in fact. Also noting that Dave Grossman's assertions about violent video games draw attention away from more grounded concerns over video games, such as online toxicity. So here's the quotation put back in its proper context. Quote, Grossman, a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, is the author of On Killing, a well-regarded 1996 book on how troops and law enforcement can be trained to cope with the necessity of taking human life. The first chapter of Assassination Generation, which is an aside, is a 2016 book that Grossman wrote specifically focusing on the harmful effects of violent video games, which we will cover in a later episode, begins with a long, impressive tour through his Man of Action resume. I'm a former buck sergeant, paratrooper, army ranger, infantry company commander, and West Point psychology professor and current law enforcement trainer. Again, this is all from Grossman. I'm a parachute infantryman and an army ranger. I've been deployed to the Arctic tundra, Central American jungles, NATO headquarters, countries that were signatories to the Warsaw Pact, and countless mountains and deserts. No egghead or couch potato he. Grossman cuts such a heroic omnicompton figure he might have stepped out of a video game himself. Instead, he is one of the medium's most tenacious critics. So that's the context of the quotation. It goes on. This is more from Miller. Quote, To support his claims that violent video games cause violent behavior in children, Grossman can muster plenty of research including a 2015 review study by the American Psychological Association stating that scientific research has demonstrated an association between violent video game use and both increases in aggressive behavior, aggressive affect, aggressive cognitions, and decreases in prosocial behavior, empathy, and moral engagement. What he doesn't mention is the open letter signed by over 200 academics criticizing the study's methodology and its conclusions based on inconsistent or weak evidence. As far as Grossman is concerned, this sort of objection, as well as the many other studies indicating no causal link between violent video games and violent behavior, are merely evidence of how insidiously the game industry has penetrated every corner of academia and the government, end quote. And I will also add, we'll get back to Assassination Generation in a later episode, because it's fucking wild, this book. But for now, I'll again note that Dave read this article by Laura Miller, read all that stuff, and only focused on the one line, which he chose to put in his own bio to show what a super cool badass he is. And that is so on brand that he would pull a quotation completely out of context if doing so benefited him personally. I will also point out his depictions of himself as a jet-setting adventurer, as quoted from Assassination Generation, are pretty commonplace for Dave. He loves to talk about how he's just an exciting adventurer. He's an army ranger. He's like parachuted everywhere. He really wants people to know about his alleged darings do in far-flung countries of the world during his service as an army ranger and paratrooper. Now, I'm not going to question whether he went to all those places. Only he knows that. However, I will point out that Dave served in the U.S. Army from 1974 to 1998, which was one of the longest stretches of relative peacetime in American history, and everything I read about him points to him having no combat experience. Also, according to his military employment history, which he used to list on his website, with the exception of some training programs in England and Panama, Dave Grossman spent the bulk of his military career stateside with stints at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, Fort Benning in Georgia, Fort Lewis in Washington State, and Fort Ord in California before whisking off to grad school in Texas, followed by his West Point appointment in New York, and his job roaming the ROTC program at Arkansas State. 
But, you know, you can see plenty of mountains and deserts in California and Texas. So maybe that's where he saw them. Now, I'm not accusing him of anything, you know, such as, you know, inflating his military exploits when it really looks like he spent most of his career as a desk jockey. But it's certainly possible, based on his record, that he took more inspiration from SLA Marshall than just his bad research. And if you recall from our previous episodes on Marshall and Dave Grossman, how Marshall made up a ton of his stories about his time in World War One. So it's possible he drew that inspiration from Marshall, too. <laughs> Any thoughts on this so far? He's starting to remind me of Jack Thompson more than a little. <laughs> Skipping ahead. They have a lot more connections than you think. So hold on to that. That'll be a future episode. But Dave and Jack are actually really incredibly intertwined. Ooh, that's intriguing. And so this kind of thing, this talking about his accomplishments, is going to be the set the tone for the rest of this episode as we dissect more of these kinds of claims. And now I want to be clear, though, we're not going to address all of them because we'd be here all day. One thing I've learned about Dave Grossman is that his resume is a war of attrition against reality. We'd be here all day debunking everything. So we're going to pick some selected things from this resume that I think will be representative examples of basically how Grossman thinks of himself and presents himself. With that in mind, let's jump to another one that stood out at me, namely that he was allegedly an expert witness in Timothy McVeigh's criminal trial. What do do y'all know about Timothy McVeigh? This is what I remember. He was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing, and he was executed by lethal injection. And I believe this was... One of the first times, if not the first time, that families of the people who died in the bombing were given the option to come watch the execution. Hmm. Isn't Timothy McVeigh ex-military? He was. Is he the one that made his bombs out of manure? I think you're right. He, yeah. I mean, there's the Unabomber. That's a separate person. But yeah, he, this guy, he made bombs out of manure. I recall that. For those who are familiar, Timothy McVeigh was a far-right terrorist connected to the American militia movement who blew up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on April 19, 1995, killing 168 people and wounding over 600 others in what was then the worst terrorist attack committed on American soil in U.S. history. It was the worst one until 9-11. McVeigh was tried and convicted on June 2, 1997, and executed on June 11, 2001. And Dave Grossman at People believe he helped contribute to that conviction, explaining to reporters he turned down a lucrative $150 an hour fee to act as an expert witness for McVeigh's defense, only to instead turn around and work with the prosecution. So, for example, here's a July the 27th, 2000 article in the Denver Post talking to Grossman. Quote, Grossman said that McVeigh's defense team originally asked him to testify. The U.S. military training turned McVeigh into a killer who couldn't control his actions. Grossman said he rejected the request because he knew that during his military training, McVeigh received huge amounts of discipline. That discipline normally would prevent a soldier from bombing his own people, Grossman said. Subsequently, the U.S. Justice Department asked him to become a prosecution witness should McVeigh's defense team raise the military-made killer defense, end quote. And you know, a lot of what we talked about with on killing was this idea that between World War II and Vietnam, that the U.S. created all these sort of training techniques that tricked soldiers into killing people. So what Grossman is trying to say here is that the defense tried to say that basically the thing that Grossman claims actually happened and tried to bring him in as an expert witness. And he turned around and turned to the Justice Department and said, even though he actually said that, he said that the army was designed to train soldiers to kill people reflexively, that they didn't do that with Timothy. They did his own thing. And as also aside, skipping ahead, Grossman has some really interesting ties to the militia movement, which I'm not going to cover right now. Question. Did Timothy McVeigh play video games? <laughs> it's funny, but my next line in my script was, if only McVeigh killed all those people after playing too much Doom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so how, I, I'm not sure I understand how calling in Dave Grossman is 
he's going to be like, well, it, it couldn't be the army training this guy to kill because clearly, you know, I don't know, Pong already trained him to kill several decades earlier. They seized Timothy McVeigh's laptop and they found that he played Mappy way too much. I see him playing <laughs> Kirby's Dreamland, just sucking in all those federal employees, <laughs> using his training against them, acquiring Dream- their skills. Dreamland is a metaphor for federal buildings on blowing up. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, however, despite this claim, I've been unable to verify whether Grossman really was involved in McVeigh's trial. As every source I've read claiming this thing that claims that Dave Grossman had something to do with trial comes from Dave himself, which makes me believe, although I can't 100% verify this, it's probably bullshit. He probably made this up, and it's just no one's called him on it. In fact, as we'll see when we cover his moral crusade against video games, Dave Grossman likes saying without proof that he was an expert witness in the trials of various school shooters. So going back to a bunch of those other ones they mentioned, they said about Paducah and he said about Springfield. Those are various school shootings that happened during the late 1990s. I can't verify this. I've not found any evidence that Grossman actually was an expert witness in any of them. I have reason to believe he tried, that he reached out to families and tried to say, you know, video games did this, but I have no evidence that they actually took him up on this. But clearly he took that idea of ingratiating himself to the families of bereaved victims during school shootings and said that that was definitely him working with them. So that's pretty on brand for Dave. So another example of a dubious claim drawn from his official bio I read a moment ago is that he co-authored a New York Times bestselling book with conservative pundit and current political non-entity Glenn Beck. Now, interestingly, despite mentioning in both of his official bios that he wrote a New York Times bestselling book with Glenn Beck, in both cases, he fails to mention which book. And that's likely because he never co-wrote a book with Glenn Beck. The closest I can find is a 2013 book published by Beck called Control, Exposing the Truth About Guns, which is basically a 189-page pro-Second Amendment screed in which Beck interviewed Grossman as he offered his well-trod line about video games being the real cause of violence in America. Clearly, Grossman felt that this interview was so instrumental to Beck's book that he declared himself its co-author, even though Glenn Beck only lists himself as the author of this book. And with that in mind... I am very happy to announce that I was one of the lead developers at Elden Ring because my hundreds of hours playing through the Soul series, including that one time I nearly soloed all the bosses in Dark Souls Remastered, clearly demonstrates the influential amount of work I put into the game. You know, FromSoft, I accept payment at ScandalCoin. You can reach out to me. Kevin, I just want to say I appreciate all the hard work you did there. It's good to be recognized. (laughs) It's a real honor to be here. But what if you, like it sounds like Dave Grossman, feel a real sense of entitlement as well as a deep sense of inferiority? So in other words, I'm entitled to everything. I'm just a piece of shit. But I'm great. I, I was No, no, not I'm great. I deserve everything, but I'm not good. <laughs> I'm hearing that I'm awesome. That's what I'm hearing from that. I'm hearing that I got positive reviews all across the board. And I was nominated for polls. I'm hearing that everybody needs to believe that I am good. <laughs> and tell me that I'm good. I personally don't think I'm good. Nothing will fill this hole in myself. But I need everyone to think that I am ultra accomplished and really good at everything I try. Again, I'm taking away from that that Scandal Games was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. 
that's what I'm taking away from that. Um, all right. Um, speaking of publications, some of his alleged flexes in that bio are significantly less impressive to someone with an actual academic background. In case in point, he brags that he contributed several encyclopedia entries, including the aggression and violence entry in the Oxford Companion to American Military History, as well as three entries in the Academic Press Encyclopedia of Violence, Peace, and Conflict, which I learned is a three-volume encyclopedia series first published in 1999. Now, I didn't have the energy to look into these citations. They may be real. They may not be real. Just because, like, you got to stop at a certain point with day because it's like, again, it's, as I said before, it's a war of attrition against facts. And it's like, you eventually reach a point of saturation where, like, you just can't handle this bullshit anymore. So I didn't look into these, but I will say this. As someone who has worked for a little bit in academia, encyclopedia entries in general don't hold a lot of scholarly weight for two reasons. One, encyclopedia entries are not peer-reviewed. So they're not being reviewed by panels of experts to see whether or not they're true or meaningful contributions to the research. And the other part of that is number two, encyclopedia writing in general is the academic equivalent of gig work. There's a reason why teachers tell you not to cite encyclopedia articles when you wrote your papers in high school. And I actually have some personal experience on this because I actually, in my younger days, uh, did actually write for some encyclopedias. I've written entries for two encyclopedias, and I helped as a contributor for primary sources for a third one. And here's what I've come away from working on an encyclopedia is that, out of curiosity, do you know how encyclopedias get written? Like what the process is to make one? I always kind of thought of it like that thing you'd see at the back of old magazines where it's like, can you draw this turtle? Then if so, you can write in and become an artist at this art school for 50 bucks. <laughs> it's it's like, you can know, you spell xylophone and write a few sentences about it? Help us write a, an encyclopedia. I don't know. The directions that you've been going with this episode really point to this issue where I am a human being that I assume what's in an encyclopedia is fact. I was raised through the school to believe that if it's in the encyclopedia, that it is a fact. And now that understanding is being challenged. It's being challenged by this show, Kevin. <laughs> it's being challenged by you. I mean, it's encyclopedia truther, yeah. So, so I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. And again, this is my experience. Other people's experience may vary. If people have different experiences than I did, scandalsgainspodcast at gmail.com. I'm willing to be proven wrong. But my own experience writing for encyclopedias was the way encyclopedias get written is you have like a couple of editors. They come together and they're going to decide to put together an encyclopedia. They pair with a publishing house. And what they basically do to write those entries is they put out an open call to academics. So like in history, there's a history mailing list and message board called HNET. And it wouldn't be uncommon to see HNET have calls for papers. And it might be, I'm writing an encyclopedia on this topic. Here's a link to all the entries that we're doing. And basically what they do is they put out a call to anybody who might have some kind of knowledge or is interested in writing on a specific topic that's going to go in that encyclopedia. And usually it's a paid gig. It doesn't pay that much. And there's a pay scale based on the type of article they write. So they may have a full list of all the entries they want in this encyclopedia with usually an estimated word count. I think the ones I saw were anywhere between 250 and about 1,500 to 2,000 words. And the amount that a person will be paid is going to depend on how much the entry is. So what usually happens, at least it was my experience writing an encyclopedia entry, was you look through the list, you say, okay, I'm going to write for this. You reach out to the editors. I will do this one. I'll do this one. I'll do this one. And they'll draft up a contract and say, okay, you'll be paid this based on that. So I wrote for two encyclopedias. I wrote for one about the history of slavery, and the other was about the history of terrorism. And I submitted to the editors. I said, I want to do this one. So, okay, write the article. I wrote the article. I sent them in, and they never got published, and I never got paid. So they're literally gig work. 
like when I was in grad school, we'd see posts in the history office of like, here's this encyclopedia. And like, basically the way people look at encyclopedia entries in the academic community, against my experience, is that it's like low level, relatively easy, low effort work that's really aimed at people trying to get a foot in the door in academia. It's not a scholarly journal. It's not peer reviewed. It's not considered in that regard, very high contributions. So that's where encyclopedias are. And like, it very well could have been that someone reached out to Dave and said, you seem to pretend like you know what you're talking about and write these encyclopedia articles. And it's possible that Dave just kind of cribbed together other material he wrote and just consolidated into what the encyclopedia asked for. So it doesn't mean he didn't do this, but him contributing to encyclopedia is no measure of his academic rigor because there is very little academic rigor behind encyclopedia writing in general. So it is very indicative. Most people who work, you know, as professors, people who are aspiring academics would not put encyclopedia entries as a major contribution to their CV because it's not impressive. And people who are in academia are not impressed by encyclopedias. Uh, and speaking of unimpressive academic contributions, on older versions of Grossman's site captured by the Wayback Machine, he used the list as undergraduate and grad school GPA, which is the academic equivalent of writing on a resume to get perfect attendance. Like pro tip for aspiring scholars, Literally no one in any academic field gives a shit about your GPA. I one time when I was riding my bike, got like three feet of air. No one was around, but like, yeah, it's super cool. That goes in the resume. <laughs> Hang on. I have been journaling every single day, even a little bit for the last two years. Haven't missed a day. It's going in the resume. You've written every day. That's a big deal. I wrote an encyclopedia entry for my day every day. <laughs> And all of this is on top of his assertions that he was a West Point psychology professor and an army ranger. And we covered the army ranger thing. So he was trained as an army ranger. He was trained as a paratrooper. He clearly shows that in his resume. But like he served in peacetime. As far as I know, he never specifically served as an army ranger. He was an administrator. He was a company commander in California. I think he was a desk jockey. Like I said, I think he. And, and can I just say, like, to be clear, it's OK if that's your job. If you serve in the military during peacetime and it ends up that that's what you're doing with your life, that's OK. Like, we're not saying you you know, doesn't count if you don't see combat, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not saying he did not serve his country because he 100% did. But I think one thing that Grossman is doing is he's definitely, because again, this is playing the percentages, the fact that he is presenting himself as an expert, a lot of cases to the police. There are a lot of people who are connected to the police who love to think they're army, who love to think they're Marines, who love to think that they're military. And I think he's appealing to the dudes who like to cosplay as soldiers, who like to, you know, wear the body armor and wear the, you know, the heavy stuff and say that, they're, you know, they're in the shit and all this stuff, even when they're not. And I think he's definitely trying to appeal to them. So, yeah, I'm a badass who fought for our country. Like, it's OK. The overwhelming majority of people who serve in the American armed forces are in support positions. They're not frontline infantry in general. There are lots of ways you can serve your country in the military that don't involve holding a gun and shooting at people. There are lots of roles that are played for that. Grossman clearly played one of those roles and no one is taking away from that. But he clearly thinks that that's not impressive enough. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to jump in talking about like why this might appeal to the police force. Isn't isn't there a program in the Department of Defense where like excess military stuff, uniforms, what, like whatever, like excess military equipment can get transferred to local law enforcement and that's why you might see police officers who look more like military. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's like a lot of conversations about like, why does like a local police force like need like an armored personnel carrier or things like that? There are lots of conversations about the militarization and the use of military supplies in police. There's also been a lot of conversations about the number of police officers who also join paramilitary groups who need to be soldiers in their free time, too. Like overarmed, overweaponized, overarmored 
dangerous. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And clearly Dave wants to show to those kinds of people, dude, I'm with you. I did all that cool shit too. Again, I'm not questioning his general military service. I'm not saying he did not serve his country, but clearly he wants people to think that he was a lot cooler than he really was. This also goes to the point, this whole thing, like you see this everywhere. He talks about him being a former West Point professor. I've seen lots of reporters talk about him being a former West Point professor. And as someone, again, this may be just a bitter failed academic that I am like, I have a problem with that. I have a real issue with him presenting himself that way because the way I see it, and again, this is only my personal perspective, When calling yourself a professor affiliated with an institute of higher learning, there's a certain expectation that you are contributing meaningful academic contributions to your field, and you're recognized at both a major institution and your peers as an expert. Like, if I'm saying that I'm a professor at a university, you would think that that means a good part of my job is being an expert, I've had a PhD, I've done meaningful research, I am contributing to this field. And that if you're presenting yourself as a former professor, that seems to be the expectation. Like if you're on like Fox News or, you know, any kind of news source where they're presenting you as a professor. But the thing is, is in reality, not all professors are created equal. I'm not saying Dave wasn't a professor. Dave definitely taught classes at West Point. He taught classes at Arkansas State University. But the thing is, is like, so on the one end, the majority of college instructors are what are called adjunct professors. They are basically people who are, they're gig workers, to be honest. They're contracted employees. They're not full-time employees of a university. And they're just brought on to teach a class. And usually adjunct instructors are taking lower level, what they call 100 or 200 level classes. They're not full-time employees. They don't even get health insurance from these colleges. They get paid very little depending on the amount of students who attend their classes. They're just there to teach these lower level classes for students to get out of the way. And this is different from, say, you know, associate or assistant professors who are actually full-time employees of a university. Some of them are on the tenure track where they're going to get, you know, permanent employment there. Some of them are hoping to get tenure track somewhere else. And there are different levels of seniority for professors. And so I think he's trying to clearly present himself as like, you know, he was a full-time tenured professor at West Point when he wasn't, because like he doesn't have a PhD, which is usually a prerequisite to be a full-time faculty member, which would suggest that one, you have a certain level of competence, but also you contribute a certain level of research. But clearly he loves just telling the general audience, a non-academic audience that he was a professor because they see it a different way. And in fact, I've seen articles, like for example, there was one a couple of years ago from Men's Journal in which someone introduced Dave at a talk of his as Dr. Grossman, which makes you think that he got a PhD when he didn't. To, to Grossman's credit, he corrected the guy and said he wasn't a PhD, but clearly he wants people to think that he was a academic, that he's a researcher. When he, As we covered, he's not. So again, by all accounts, Grossman was an adjunct in psychology, both at West Point, where he was specifically in a professional development program with a set term limit. He wasn't a permanent professor. And at Arkansas State University, where he was specifically hired to oversee the military science program, and that he taught psych classes on the side. So calling him a psych professor is kind of a misrepresentation. And you know, speaking for myself, I've taught undergraduate courses at a major state university, but I would not feel comfortable like going on a TV news segment and saying I'm a professor at that university, that I'm affiliated at that university, because that's a misrepresentation of my qualifications. Clearly, Dave doesn't have an issue with that, because saying he's a former West Point professor, which is technically correct, albeit misleading, does lend greater credence that he's an academic making significant contributions to his field. And this is why we need to listen to him about violent video games or, you know, killing or killology or whatever. This kind of representation as a professor is a really easy way for grifters to make themselves seem legitimate. And it's one of the most insidious, subtle ways that Grossman and others like him trick people into thinking that we should listen to him. It's almost like he's the guy from Catch Me If You Can, just kind of 
making up a story as it goes. And I guess appealing to a group of people who are not going to kick the tires too hard, you can do that. Yeah, I was thinking about the fact that like I, he started much earlier than YouTube, but nowadays you can just go on the internet and start talking about a subject. And if you understand psychology, you understand that just like me, most people assume that the encyclopedia is in fact this scientific, factual thing. Like there's this big bureau in Great Britain and they're being regulated by the queen herself and they're publishing Encyclopedia Britannica, right? And every single point in there is being reviewed, right? And you can just use that to manipulate people. And that's what it sounds like. I'm wondering how successful this guy is. Is he making like lots of money? Is his store making lots of money? Or is this just kind of this guy who's just used burning up his free time in retirement, you know, just throwing eggs at everybody, hoping that somebody pays attention to him. Somebody comes over and says, Dr. Grossman, you changed my life. You made me understand that I need to have a gun. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think I needed a Gatling gun in my life, but now I feel like I have to have one. And now I feel like I need two. I walked down the street and I saw this boy wearing this Mario Brothers t-shirt and I was so happy that I had my gun in. (laughs) 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 You little punk. <laughs> so, Kevin, I was once watching a short documentary on PBS about Wikipedia versus encyclopedias, like World Book and Encyclopedia Britannica. And they, I think they were talking to a former World Book editor, and he was saying, you know, like Wikipedia, they're just, you know, cobbling together what a bunch of different people say, you know, via consensus. And, you know, the truth is not democratic. And the interviewer says, the truth is not democratic. And he goes, yeah, if it was, wouldn't everybody know it? And I had to think about that for a while. But I think where I got to was just that that's a really great argument for a person who wants to position themselves as the arbiter of truth, but can't really back that up with anything. And there's so many people yeah. who like, that's how they live their lives is like, you know, who can know anything? Me. I can know everything. Listen to me. Buy my book. Yeah, that's perfect, Phil, because by saying that, the person then makes you have to be on the defensive and disprove, right, what they're saying, right? I can't remember, there was this YouTube video I was watching recently, and there was this back and forth between this guy who was basically asking this woman a standard question, and her it was a similar sort of response where her response, the way she said it, makes her sound credible, but... What she was saying, there was no common sense behind it. So without any explanation, she was basically asking questions of the interviewer, but her questions were leading you in a direction that needed further explanation. Similar to that guy. Anyway, we digress. There's a certain impulse when in a vacuum, people want to know information and some people will step into that vacuum and they'll say, this is what I know. And then some people will, because this is the thing, I can't speak for other countries. America, we both love and hate experts. We love people who can validate our foundations and our information. And like, this is great for, as we'll skip ahead, there are certain interest groups that love a guy like Dave, who will go out there and make these claims. And I think you pointed this out, Phil, too, or it was maybe Alfred. It's like, you're the first voice out there. The impetus is to disprove you, but you're the first voice out there. And it's a lot harder. I think it was, was it uh, Terry Pratchett said, it says, a lie can travel 10 miles before the truth gets its shoes on. 
kind of well, thing. Now, yeah. yeah, and and I, I'm going to just go ahead and jump in here. There, there have been a number of studies that have shown over the years recently, you know, over the last close to a decade, if not more than that, I'm sure, about how particularly stories online get shared and spread farther if it's something that you'll get angry about, right? I mean, there's a, was it Maria Ressa, there's a, the Nobel Prize winning journalist that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts, right? Yeah. I've often believed that anger is the greatest political motivator. Well, and I think uh, that that's what she's saying, like studies have shown, again, that when you've got lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and farther than facts. And that's very true, right? It, it feels like if this is something that you're angry, but like if you're riled up, you're engaged and you, you, you know, whether you want to disprove this or you want to back this point to this and say, see, this is why, you know, you're way more likely to just keep perpetuating that and sharing that out and putting it out there. And then more people will get that same level of engagement. than if you actually put the fact out there and like, you know, this never really happened or something like that, or it happened in the following way that just kind of gets lost amidst the noise. Hey, that's interesting that you mentioned that because it's something I've seen running fat role gaming like what videos do well mm -hmm. and the second most popular videos are the ones where i do something well and you know my character looks cool and stuff the ones that do the best that outperform everything are the ones where i'm doing something stupid and everybody is dunking on me or is infuriated or they realize i'm fat rolling and they're like that's wrong you can't fat roll shame <laughs> We're, how dare you fat roll but yeah. like, these videos are the ones that people want to share either say look at this doofus or see this is an example of someone doing the thing i told you that i don't like or oh my god why doesn't he just do x y and z you know i'm infuriated <laughs> watching this as opposed to yeah i mean there's more to say right as opposed to check out this video of this player doing something awesome in this game and it's really invigorating and exciting to watch. I mean, I think that there's there's kind of two parts of this one being, you know, what we're talking about here directly about if it enrages you or if it angers you, if it upsets you or if it if it's something that already, you know, is a thing that makes you upset and you're likely to go back and say this is more of the stuff that upsets me that I'm talking about. And here's why it's wrong, right? Like if you saw, you know, an article about a particular, I don't know, a particular political figure who you really dislike and hear something saying like, well, here's how this terrible thing, the thing that you think is terrible, rather, actually was really good for the US. You're more likely to like repost that and say, you know, <laughs> here we go. This article's jacked up in the following ways. And then likewise, there's also, it's a separate thing, but the idea that you could just spread an absolute lie. And even if it very much gets cleared up, it's still out there. Like if I say, you know, okay, pick a really lame and stupid product, harmless, something lame and stupid, but harmless, please. Someone, anyone, I don't care. Um, I got a bag of ruffles in front of me. So potato chips. Okay. So like you could see if there's a headline that says, you know, Scandalcoin server farms used to funnel money to elementary schools to replace fresh vegetables with junk food. I Total garbage. To and like, if it turns out like, no, that's a total lie. None of that happened. Scandal coin is a nice, fun thing that Phil made for a friend. And if you give us $75 to become Pulitzer Prize nominated, well, you will get one too. But, but the, this other thing is, is BS. Cool. Great. Fine. And in fact, you could put it all on the up and up out there that it's like, here's how this was entirely debunked. But unfortunately, you can't unring that bell. And so from then on, oh, Scandalous Games, isn't that the podcast where they were like taking fresh vegetables out of schools? And like, you kind of can't escape that, that sort of, you know what I mean? So it's like, even if it's like, no, that was, that was a weird thing. And here's all the information to the contrary. That's right out there. That's objective fact and not think pieces or how I feel or, you know what I'm saying? Like, doesn't matter. 
there's going to be the vast majority of people who engage on this at all at the same level that we engage with the stuff that ticks us off that we go ahead and repost and say, check out this idiot who's fat rolling and he shouldn't be doing that. You know, hey, check out this podcast where they want kids to get, you know, unhealthy because they don't get to have fresh vegetables at school. Yeah, it's the razor blade and the Halloween candy kind of phenomenon. Yeah. And to support that, Kate, with once again, something I saw on the channel, if you have like an uplifting video where somebody does something well, that doesn't usually... Like one of the things that causes a video to get promoted, at least anecdotally from what I see on the channel, is people being engaging in the comments. So like it's hard to get people to engage that way over something that is positive and unites people. If you really want people to engage with the video, you have to put up something that's divisive. Yeah. 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 But you're right, Philip. You can also just see, like, in comment discourse, like, I don't even remember what. I was watching a YouTube review for some movie, and there was, like, uh, a scene in the movie where this guy is on a date with a woman and her kid, and he's getting really er behaving erratically, and she gets uncomfortable and tries to leave. And I think it's, like, a thriller, action, whatever movie, so probably he whisks them out of the diner or something. I couldn't tell you what this movie was or what happens. But anyway, I'm just kind of scrolling through the comments about the movie, which is not at all about that scene. And then, you know, people are kind of dunking on the movie in certain ways or saying, like, I really like the commentary. And then, you know, the, the thread that had 130 responses on it was the one that started, oh, a typical woman. She's okay with a guy paying for her meal until, then, you know, but until, he, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, you know, oh, well, she's okay with him paying for her meal, but when he doesn't agree with her, then she gets really upset. Well, that's just a typical woman for you. And then people go into the comments like, well, what do you mean? That's not being fair. Well, yes, it no. And then like, it just devolves and it kind of doesn't even bear reiteration, but it's sort of, but that's engagement, right? That's what people remember. That's what people are thinking about. And engagement is what fuels many an algorithm that tells a lot of these websites and a lot of, and I know we're kind of all over the map here, but like Facebook is a great example where you are shown more of the things that have a lot of general engagement and that you are more likely to engage with. And as you're more likely to engage with stuff that ticks you off to say, this isn't true and this ticks me off and I can't believe people think this way or whatever, you're going to see more of that stuff. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And it's like all these ways that folks like that have kind of hacked our brain into promoting this kind of stuff. Alfred, you were starting to say something. Yeah, I'm just getting a little emotional here. I just want to make clear is scandalous games can try to take fresh vegetables out of school lunch. <laughs> um, no, no, no comment. I no. want to know the truth. <laughs> Where's Andy? Andy's our lawyer. Um. I'm going to start another Patreon. Send me $50,000. I will buy fresh vegetables and take them to the schools on Candles Games' behalf. Oh, great. Now we got to make the obligatory, insincere YouTube apology video. I have to restring my ukulele if we're going to do that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and it's, I think this is a good place to stop. So I hope that you'll join us next time as we try to peel back another layer of Dave Grossman's supposedly impressive slash not very impressive resume. And that will do it for today's episode of Scandalous Games. If you like what we're doing and want to help the show, subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. If you want to learn more, check out our website, scandalousgamespodcast.wordpress.com, where I publish the show notes and the sources for every episode. Our theme music is Occam's Sequi by Seek Knowledge via the Free Music Archive. Use under a CCB. BYNCSA 3.0 US license. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a topic for a future episode, email us at scandalskingspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Kevin and Pelizzari. I'm Phil Thomas. I'm Alfred Stevens. I'm Kate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next scandal. Subscribe to Fat World Gaming on YouTube.